From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Super Power School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Danda, and in today's episode, I have a colleague, as well as a really good friend, and someone who's an absolute brain box when it comes to learning and leadership. It's the amazing Jill Shepard, who's our leadership practice director at QA, which is a company I work for by day. Hey Jill, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you, Paddy, and thanks for inviting me. Nice to be known as a brain box. I guess I do have, for my sins, a PhD, six years to get a PhD. And I don't regret it, but it was it was really hard work. But it's all about strategy, innovation, so how ideas get moved around in businesses, how they evolve, how they get lost, how they start. So yeah, it was good fun to do and I'm quite proud of it. But yes, thank you very much for mentioning it. Not many people do. It's a bit in my past, but yeah. Oh. Thank you for that. You are welcome. Should I be calling you Dr. Shepherd then? Well, technically, yes, but <laughs> I don't use it that often. Somebody said to me I should use it when you get stuck for a speeding offence. I'll have it on your driving licence and say, oh, I'm Dr. Shepherd," but I don't have what it takes to do that, I'm afraid. So it just hangs around. I used to be in academia, so obviously then yeah, you use it a lot. I, you know, I've had a varied career. I've done academic work. I've been a management consultant. I've been in corporates. I've been in entrepreneurship. And I shifted from academia, you know, learning and teaching in academia, post the research in my PhD, to this corporate environment and corporate learning, which is where I am now. Fantastic. So such a diverse background there. And I think we're perfectly set up for this episode. So Joe, what superpower would you like to bring to this episode? Well, it might sound a bit cliche, but I'd like to bring learning as a superpower. The reason for that is I think learning is much more demanding of the learner nowadays. It can be sometimes overlooked. You can sometimes just assume you can learn, that you will learn. And maybe in today's fast-moving environment, it's not quite like that. And I can absolutely empathise with that because I see on a day-to-day basis the challenges we're having, especially having converted a lot of our training to virtual now. And I think it's so demanding, not just for the learner, but the actual delivery staff as well, the trainers and the coaches, because even when I've personally given online training I find it so much more exhausting than actually being physically in a room because you've almost got to be three steps ahead in terms of your planning for your session. So uh, absolutely resonate with all of that. So I think what you just talked about there comes from that, oh, the managers are time poor. You know, we're time poor ourselves, aren't we? We're running around. And I can see where corporates have kept that virtual learning because it wastes less time. But it is indicative of the fact that we are always running on on hamster wheels. So you've got that notion of being time poor. And learning is not something you can be certain of achieving an outcome. It's not a task you can easily say, I've done that. I've written that email. I've written that port. You can never quite sure when you embark on some learning quite what you're going to get out of it. So for a time poor manager, it can be quite tricky to dedicate time to it when you're in this outcome-related world. 
And then I think another reason why it's become more of an interesting superpower, tricky to develop, is everything's moving so fast. You know, technology in every role is impacting what we do and is emerging and integrating into our lives far faster than it ever has done before. And so you're finding that you need to reskill much more often, or even maybe you upskill, reskill. Your upskill can can perhaps feel less threatening to you as a learner because you're just incrementally altering who you are and what you stand for and the work that you do. But even then, if you're reskilling, you can find that you've become a master at the top of a pile of a legacy system. And then suddenly that legacy system is no longer and you're nobody again. So even reskilling can involve quite a lot of reskilling. And then in QA, we like to talk about upskilling as well. So companies are are saying, well, hold on, you know, automation might have taken the robot out of your role and we'd like you to go and do another role. Or, you know, we're closing down a branch in a bank, so we'd like you to um, completely reskill to be a data scientist. Now, that's really tough because, you know, mid-career, you are suddenly learning to adopt a completely different professional identity. And we've never really asked a learner to do that before. We've asked them to do learning that's pretty much core and incremental to their role, and which is also not so related to their career paths. I think that's the last point I'd like to make. Learning is much more something you have to do to keep on top of your career path and to stay ambitious or stay in a role or stay alongside your peers. So you've got that pressure to learn. So you've got this time pour down here, but this pressure to learn here to keep your career going. And yet in between, you're on a hamster wheel as well and dealing with your emails and dealing with that tech and this tech and that new thing and this person and your virtual hybrid. All of that makes for a learning environment that's not particularly calm, that you're not ready for, yet you also know you need. So that's why I reckon it's it's a superpower that people should look out for because they've not had to think about it before. Yeah, I love the way you've just put that actually with all of those challenges. And I think many of those I probably hadn't even considered. So it's great you've mentioned some of those. I remember when I left university, I was sick of doing exams. And I remember coming out and saying, I'm done with education, never going to sit another exam again. And I just want to start work now. And for a few years, I didn't do any exams. I probably didn't do any training courses for a while. But I think I very quickly learned that actually, how wrong was I? That learning has to be a lifelong initiative that you've somehow got to build passion for. If someone's out there who had that similar mindset to me, what advice would you have for them? What if people did feel like, you know what, I think I've invested like you invested six years in a, in a whole PhD and someone says, I'm done with this. What advice would you have for them? Trust me, there were times in my PhD when I thought that, but I kept going. I think a few things off the top of my head. I think I'd first look backwards and say, what was it about that system that made you tired of it? You Was it that you couldn't see vocational purpose? Was it that the way in which you were assessed didn't suit you. Was it that you didn't like the teacher? You Was it that you were in a family or an environment that didn't support the learning or that overly supported it? 
So I would look back and try and unpack that relationship that you had between that view you had of learning at that point and what, what was it that led to it so that you can take not that particular relationship into your future, but that ability to be aware of how to unpack that relationship between your motivation and learning. And then you can look at a new learning environment and say, well, what does motivate me to undertake this learning and what might come in my way? And do I want that blocker to stop me or how am I going to overcome that blocker and keep going? So it sounds like there could have been some reasons why you're feeling like that. And so that brings me on to learning styles. We all have different preferences and I'm guessing there's not a one size fits all. Could you give us some insight on learning styles? I am passionate about it because I hate the word learning styles. If you want to understand why I'm passionate about not using the word learning styles, there's a really good TED talk on why learning styles, like that idea to kinesthetic and visual and what have you, doesn't work in terms of people having a preference. The research shows that actually mixing those up is more important. People don't have a preference. It's just that if you mix it up, you're coming at the learning from different perspectives and that helps somebody, which is why I value your visual contribution because it's a rare one. But there are all those different learning styles. They all work. They all work in the same people. Just mix them up. What I like to think about more is different motivations around learning. So your learning ability to learn is affected by your motivation to learn. And I like to think take a look at what learning theory tells us about the different ways in which we might be motivated. So it's the same idea. It's not that you have to learn kinesthetically or that's your preference. It's the same with motivation. You might in a particular moment be motivated in a in certain way around learning. Another day or another week or another term or another year, another moment in your life, you might be motivated in a different way. But if you know what those motivations are that tend to be held and understood by specialist L&D people and not by learners, then you're at an advantage in managing your own motivation. So just to give you an example of you know, a learning theory, there's a learning theory called expectancy. So the source of the motivation, if you're in expectancy mode, is I must expect to succeed. I value success. I'm ambitious, if you like. And therefore, in this learning, I need to see a clear connection from the get-go between the learning and its impact on my work and my success and what I value as helping me become even more successful. Okay. Now, what might therefore affect your motivation if you're in that mode is maybe a bad experience in the past where you, you absolutely thought a piece of learning was going to give you a brilliant career trajectory and it didn't. Or the opposite. You've had an experience in the past. You started to talk about how your past experiences might affect your future approach to learning. You've had a, an experience in the past where it's been the opposite. So you need to become aware in that sense, look at any learning that you want to be motivated to commit to or that your organisation wants to be motivate you to be committed to and try and unpack that relationship between value and success and your learning motivation. To give you another example, Paddy, of another learning theory that you can translate into how you might be motivated differently 
is attribution theory. Now, attribution theory says, I want to find explanations between whether my attitude has affected my learning and the effectiveness of my learning. So it's quite emotional. You're starting off with the premise, I know my mood is going to affect my ability to learn. So you will then start to say, well, am I happy about this learning? Am I frustrated with it? This sort of learning theory and motivation tends to bubble up during a course. So you might have started a course super happy about it and then you might become frustrated. You know, you've got too much new stuff coming towards you and you're all a bit discombobulated. And so you start to feel yourself maybe get demotivated and you start therefore to question your relationship between those emotions and your learning. It can happen the other way, right? You can get super excited and almost carried away by the excitement and forget to consolidate that learning. You know, I can remember... Yeah, at university, I'd have some brilliant lectures and you'd come out and you'd think, oh, that was really entertaining. I feel really happy. And then you'd stop and you'd think, yeah, but did I actually learn anything? They entertained me, but did I learn anything? And I think as trainers, really good trainers are conscious of is getting them excited, but also stretching them out of their comfort zone. So attribution theory will, will, is quite useful often during the process of perhaps a relatively long learning program where your emotions are going, are going up and down. And it's related to what we were talking about at the past. See, your emotions might well go up and down if you're being asked by your organisation to reskill and you're super excited about it at the beginning. Oh, I've got an opportunity to radically change my career. You know, I was a bit bored. I'm really up for this change into a software engineer or a data scientist or whatever it is that you, you're changing into and it does tend to be technical especially in our world and in the world we live in at the moment but you might suddenly hit a brick wall you know you're being taught something you're really struggling to understand it and suddenly all of that excitement disappears and you're left really demotivated so in that mode you can start thinking well what are the internal sources of that emotion what are the external sources so an external source might be you know what, that trainer went through that way too quickly. Maybe it was somebody else in the group. We run retrospectives that sometimes look at these learning emotions to help surf these emotions in our learners at QA. And, and you say, well, if there are lots of people who didn't get that learning because the trainer just went too fast for that group, maybe, that are just coming at things from a different angle, then let's all ask that trainer to go through it more slowly. Or now with digital learning, you can maybe... We look at a video or you might have some material in a blended learning scenario where you can reinforce or go back to, you know, some of the places where you can practice your learning in a, in a lab, for example. So that can be really useful to think about your relationship between your emotions and your learning. Another learning theory that again, you can translate into motivation is social. So some, for some people, learning is about being there with other people, learning from them, just the social experience of getting excited together, getting confused together, getting baffled. Maybe if you're, if you've got a concept that your peer hasn't been able to teach and coach them. So it's a very much a social experience that you favor or again, that might be being somewhat imposed on you. So if you know that you are normally a technical person who you know, just sits, works from home and does your technical stuff and you don't tend to 
like socializing, then if a, if a learning is asked of you that is social, you can go into it kind of knowing that that will have a different dynamic and maybe having some strategies that, that will allow you to cope with it and yet still learn. And maybe even come out of it thinking, well, actually now I do value social learning more. Maybe it's never going to be what I feel innately comfortable with, but I'll, you know, I can go with the flow. I can now know I've got confidence to learn if the learning is very, very social. And so that can just be about being aware whether the learning is social, how are you going to react and reflectively thinking about whether you reacted in the way that you thought. If learn social learning is really what you're up for, you know, you much prefer that, then you you might like to think if you're if you're doing self-paced learning, how you could maybe do it alongside another person. So, you know, you've got that ability at the end of the day, oh, have you done that, that bit of the self-paced? You know, can I have a chat with you? What did you think about it? If, if you're being required to do self-paced learning, then you can bring some social learning into it out of your choice and through your own intentionality. Oh, I love that. I think I'm probably more inclined to follow that social learning approach because I do feel I learn much better when and being pushed by other people around me and inspired by other people. I think that's definitely my go-to in many ways, but I guess we're all different. And that relates to your background sometimes, not always, but sometimes. So if you've been in roles where succeeding has involved a lot of team playing and you're you know, an agilist at heart, so you would migrate naturally to social environments and get that sense of working together as a team, you are likely to have had success in your learning when it has been social because being social is what being agile is about. So that goes back to that first theory, that expectation theory. You value being a good agilist. You value sharing what it is to be a good agile person with a really broad community of people. So you're therefore thinking, yeah, that expectancy theory is working there. Social learning is going to help you become a better agile person because agile is so much about that community. So you are going to migrate naturally towards that.